Uh, well, a couple weeks ago, we had the opportunity to hear from this brother, our pastoral intern, Oscar Vasquez. And today we have the pleasure of hearing from him again. And uh, what he'll be preaching on is, it dovetails very nicely with what he preached on two weeks ago. Oscar is, uh, I'm very glad to be encouraging him to be preaching the word here. He is a gifted evangelist, and that's probably one of the ways that he's been a, a massive encouragement to me and a challenge to me. Um, you know, different people are, God gifts different people in different ways. And uh, I, I don't think I have met um, people who have, who by God's grace and by God's favor, uh, has used to introduce them to Jesus. Uh, and by God's grace to also see some fruit. I mean, like I share the gospel too, but the Lord for various reasons uh, hasn't allowed me the pleasure of um, seeing fruit there. But then when it comes to Oscar, I think he we can both look together and say, okay, you know, these people he shared the gospel with, and they're texting him about how they're enjoying church now to the church that he's pointed them to uh, and have claimed to be Christians. So it's really encouraging, and I know that many of you guys are encouraged as well from this, brother. Uh, so we thank you for preaching the word. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be able to, and privilege to be able to share the word of God with you. And all praise and honor be to God, for we can do all of these things through through Him. And it's because of His grace that we can share the gospel with others. Um, as Pastor Jeremy said, today we're going to be continuing with a psalm that builds on uh, Psalm 1, which we heard uh, two weeks ago. Uh, if you want to open your Bibles with me, today we'll be going over Psalm 15. Now, you and I live in a culture where many people are far too casual when it comes to approaching God. It's very common to see people today wear shirts that say, Jesus is my homie or my homeboy. Um, I've seen plenty of these t-shirts. And unfortunately, this attitude is also carried over when um, one approaches God very laid-back attitude. This should not be the way that we come before our holy and righteous God. While it is true that our relationship with God is very personal and intimate, we must never forget that He is holy and righteous and that He requires certain things of those um, people that He has redeemed. So Psalm 15 expands on the way of the blessed man. Having been saved, there are certain things that are required of this man, of the recipient of God's gift of salvation. And this psalm raises some important questions. And I'd like to invite you to consider these. What does God require of those who enter into his holy presence? Does it even matter to God how we come before him? Having been saved, can we come before him however we want? Does the condition of our heart matter to God? Who is allowed to have fellowship with God? And I'd like for us to think about these questions as we go over Psalm 15 this morning. Now, one of my favorite quotes comes from a famous pastor and preacher whose name is A.W. Tozer. And he writes in his book, The Holiness of God, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. This is very true. If we have a low and shallow understanding of who God is, chances are that we're going to treat him as such and we're going to approach him such this world has rewired us to think differently to think without holiness and as we know we all have this inner understanding of what's right and what's wrong and i'll prove it to you if you're driving your car and you're texting which we shouldn't do 
And all of a sudden, you see a police officer or a sheriff's uh, deputy or uh, yeah, pull up next to you, or you see him in your rearview mirror. Even if, you, if a person does not know Christ, one of the first things that he or she is going to do is get their phone and toss it in the back seat or drop it and play it off. Why? Because there is an understanding of right and wrong. So this world has rewired us to think and live without holiness. We have come to accept evil as natural and expected. And as a result, a lot of times we don't know how to approach God because we don't have a right understanding of who He is. Sometimes it's because our understanding of Him is based on how we perceive Him to be. And when we let this happen, this um, leads us to idolatry because it leads us to worship a God who is not the God who has revealed Himself in Scripture. I'm reminded of a man who had a right understanding of who God is. The prophet Isaiah received this call from God, and when he received it, he also had an encounter with the holiness of God. The revelation of God's holiness led him to respond with humility, confession of, of his sinfulness, and his need for mercy. He responded with, Woe is me! And identified himself with the sinfulness of his people. Now we should never forget that the only reason we can come before God is because of our mediator, Jesus Christ. And having been justified and clothed with his righteousness, we are called to action. We're called to respond to that. So the way of the blessed man is one that requires him to prepare himself as he approaches the king, his king, King Jesus because he requires the citizens of his kingdom to walk in holiness. Now, Psalm 15 gives us an overview of what this looks like. So, as we will see, it describes who is a welcomed guest in the tent of the Lord and who may dwell with him. So, if you want to turn to Psalm 15 with me, I'm going to read through it. And it says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does, and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. So David's aim here is to teach us that the spiritual condition of our lives matters to God. God requires personal holiness in our lives as we will see and the worship that we offer with our lips needs to match the worship that we offer with our life. As a side note, to offer something other than what is known, uh, to offer something other than what we proclaim with our mouth is known as hypocrisy. That is, if we speak words of worship to God and at the same time, live comfortable lives in sin without repentance and confession of sin. So if you're taking notes, our first point this morning is the question. There is a question that David asks. And he asks, O oh Lord, who, sh who uh, shall so sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? And from the beginning we find that the tent and the holy hill belong to God. The questions that are present are ones that are addressed that, that address the moral requirements for having fellowship with God. These two questions are the same, but they're asked differently. And this is a, a, a literary technique known as uh, Hebrew parallelism, where the, where the second line is a restatement of the first line. And you'll be able to see that this morning. So in the time of David, the tent referred to the tent that was prepared for the Ark of the Covenant, 
when it was moved to Jerusalem. God's holy hill refers to Mount Zion in Jerusalem, and it was the site where Solomon, David's son, would later build a temple. So the question that David asks is relevant to us today. Who may access God's tent? Or in other words, who may have access to his presence? We find a similar question again a few chapters ahead in in Psalm chapter 24, verse 3, where David asks, Who may ascend to the house of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy presence? Now, when something is repeated in the Bible, it's very likely that it's important and we should give careful attention to it. So this must mean that how we approach God must be important to him. Now, before we continue, the question that David asks is not asking, what must I do to be saved? Nor is it asking, what must I do to gain access to God? Because as we saw in Psalm 1, the way of the blessed man is the way of the man who has already been saved. So here in in Psalm chapter 15, we're expanding on that. We must understand that our sanctification, then, is just as important as our justification. Understanding that both come from God and both require a response. In 2008, I went on a mission trip to China. I was in Beijing for two months, I believe it was, if I remember correctly. And it was my first time visiting the the Eastern Hemisphere. And I learned a lot of different but interesting things. And one of those things that I learned was the practice of taking one's shoes off before entering someone's house. Prior to my visit, this custom was foreign to me because I didn't grow up doing that. I would always just dust my feet off at the front mat and then walk in. So this was different. And sometime during my trip, I was having lunch with one of my students. And the question came up, and I was given three reasons why um, this uh, this is practiced. Number one, it's a good health practice for the feet. Number two, it helped to keep or it helps to keep the house clean. And number three, it's a sign of respect from what I remember um, my student telling me. And this made sense to me because shoes are dirty. They get dirty. And so I've remembered that ever since. Now, in Psalm 15, the question that we are dealing with is, who may walk into the presence of God? Or in other words... There are some spiritual practices or house cleaning that must take place when we approach God. Jesus, on a certain occasion, took up a towel, a bucket, and some water and decided to wash his disciples' feet to teach them a lesson. Now, if you remember, he approached Peter first and Peter responded with, Lord, what are you going to do? Are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus said, you know, you you don't understand what I'm doing now, but you will later. If you don't, uh, and Peter said, you will never wash my feet. I'm not going to let you. You're the Messiah. You're the king. How are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus responded, You don't understand what I'm doing now, but you will later. And if I, if I don't do this, you have no part with me. And Peter said, well, in that case, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said, to the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. You are clean. So in other words, Jesus was saying, you need to be washed because you walk. You're walking in a corrupt and dirty world. You have already been saved, but you need to be washed. The blessed man, the man who has been saved, has the privilege of accessing God's presence. Therefore, 
He must never forget that that God cares how we conduct ourselves in our daily living, and we really need to wash our feet before we come into His presence. So once again, what is the character of the person who dwells in God's presence? Or we can restate this and ask, what is the character of the person whom God welcomes? So what this lets us know is that God requires holiness of his people. Peter reminds us that, but as as the one who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And this shouldn't surprise us because it's a theme that's found throughout the Bible. And it's something that God calls us um, to, to walk in holiness. And so in the, ver- in the, in the following verses, we're going to see the spiritual requirements that God requires in our lives as we approach Him. And we'll find this in verses 2 through 5. And it's presented once again through the literary device known as a Hebrew parallelism, where line A and line B are parallels or restatements. And this is not an exhaustive list. It would be easy if we could find everything that God requires of us in five verses. But it's not an, exa- it's not an exhaustive list. It, it, this list just provides an overview of what God requires of those who have fellowship with Him. So this leads us to the second point, the answer. The answer to the question that David raises. And here we find the, those requirements. So, the first answer we find it in the first couplet, and it has to do with our conduct. Our conduct must be holy. David writes that the man that may have fellowship with God is one who walks blamelessly and does what is right. And we find that in verse 2. So in line A, we see that the word walks, the word walks describes the way a person lives his life on a daily basis. And we saw this Uh, When we went over Psalm 1. Just like the way of the blessed man heads in one direction, the way of the one who has fellowship with God walks in one direction. He does not walk on both paths because that's impossible. This includes the daily conduct that we have. Another way of describing this person is that he is a man of integrity. Now, integrity is an interesting word. It's a word that means wholeness or completeness. And it refers to the wholeness of a person's character. It means that we we are well-rounded, walking consistently on the same path. So practically speaking, this is a person who is the same Monday through Saturday and then on Sunday morning. If we were to compare this person to a house, it does not mean that this person only allows God into certain rooms while he prohibits God from entering into certain closets. No, this man allows God to have the master key to every room and every closet in the house and he lets God walk in as he, as he wishes to examine what's in there. As a whole... This man is blameless. It doesn't mean that he's perfect. But it means that this man is seeking holiness. The idea of walking blameless or in integrity is that we keep, that we strive to keep all of God's commandments by His grace as best as we can. Now, if you are like me, you sin. Every day. We all do. And we all fall short of the glory of God. But there needs to be a gradual growth in our lives that demonstrates that we're growing in holiness. From the time that we were saved, from the time that God gave us life, 
new life, that we were reborn till today, we should be able to look back and measure a growth in holiness. Sometimes it's constant. Sometimes it's a little slower. But we should be able to measure this 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 growth. If we can't measure any growth and we've been getting worse, then there's a problem there. And something that I've learned not too long ago that that has stuck with me is that as the church, we are not to expect perfection from each other because none of us are perfect. But we are to expect holiness. We're not to expect perfection, but we are to expect holiness. Now, the second part of this couplet is, he who... um, He does what is right. And here the word does is what God requires of each one of us. He requires that we act out what is right. Because scripture says that to him who knows what is right and doesn't do it, it is sin. And so this is contrary to what's very popular today that's known as a let go and let God theology. And this is a passive attitude of just sitting on the side and doing nothing until we go to heaven. The Christian life is an active life. Jesus calls his people to strive to enter by the narrow gate that leads to eternal life. In other parts of scripture, we are commanded or we are encouraged to press on and to put off. This means that we must be diligent and active in making every effort to overcome our sinful tendencies. And once again, this can only be done by God's grace. God gives us the desire and the ability to do so. We're required to act upon that. So to do what is right means to live in a way that conforms to God's holiness. And the measure of God's holiness is not found in the world as compared to the wicked man. The wicked man lives according to the world, but the blessed man lives according to the law of God. So the first couplet calls the man who is to have fellowship with God to walk blamelessly or in integrity. So take some time to check to see if there are any areas in your life where you're not walking in integrity. Are there areas in your life where you need to repent or confess of any hidden sins? Are you delighting in the way of the wicked or do you delight in God? Because the one who may dwell in God's presence is not someone who is perfect, but is someone who repents and confesses their sins continually who washes his feet continually, depending on God's grace to pursue holiness. Now the second couplet leads us to our communication. Our communication must also be holy. And there at the end of verse 2, to the beginning of verse 3, it reads, And speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue. It's not just what we are, it's not just about what we are, but also about what we say. We will find that there is a relationship between speaking truth in the heart and not slandering with the tongue. Both of these deal with our words. God cares about our speech, especially if we are to be in his presence. So the first line says, this man speaks truth in his heart. This means to be committed to speaking truth. This is a man who speaks out of the abundance of his heart, as Jesus describes. Before being saved, he delighted in lies and falsehood. But now his delight is found in truth. He does not believe one thing in his heart. And, and, and but says something else with his mouth. No, because that would be hypocrisy. 
Here we find that there's a consistency between the words that come out of the, uh, out of his mouth and what is in his heart. So this means that he's not double-tongued. There's no double talk. Next, um, in this same couplet, David rephrases this very uh, verse by stating it in the negative. And there in verse 3, he says, He does not slander with his tongue. Now, slander means to attack the reputation of someone else. Or it is to attack the character of another. Paul writes to us in Ephesians, and he says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only as is good for building up. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. So we find that God cares about the way in which we communicate. There should be no unhealthy or corrupting or destructive words coming out of our mouth. I have a friend who is part of a Bible study that I lead on on Monday nights, and he was saved in January. Now, I praise God for his life because... From what he's shared with me, there was a radical change in his life. This uh, is a guy that grew up in the streets, very tough guy, and he was heavily influenced by the world. But the Lord saved him, and he went from loving the world to loving God. And every time I hear about the work that God did and is continually doing, I'm left in awe. And one thing that I admire about him is his desire, his passion to share the gospel, because he understands the life that he was that that he was living before he was saved was a life that was leading him to destruction. And he almost died on a few occasions. So when God saved him, his life changed and he desired to to start sharing the gospel. But what was interesting, what's interesting or was interesting about him was that every time we'd meet a uh, we'd meet at Bible study, he would share about his most recent experience uh, of sharing the gospel with someone at the gym. And I and I actually I I ran into him I think maybe like two or three times while he was while he was doing that. But something that was interesting about him was that you would hear all of these truths of Scripture. I was lost, but now I'm saved. I was dead. God gave me life. But what was interesting about this is that as he was proclaiming these truths, these truths were mixed in with cuss words. So here he was talking about the grace of God with a beep. It was censored. And then some more graces of God. And knowing him, I see the sincerity in his heart of wanting to share the good news that God had done in his life. But as a newborn babe, he still had to develop. And so, some of the guys in the Bible study, um, with myself, we would encourage him and and we would lead him to Scripture and say, you know, we love what you're doing and we want you to, to continue doing what you're doing, but we need to change the way that we speak because it contradicts the message that you are sharing. And so together we learned that with by the grace of God, He gives us the desire and the ability to be able to do this. And fast forwarding now to September, and as, as I've been thinking about this, I, I've realized that he has been cussing less and less every time. And there's been a change in his speech. And so by God's grace, he does this a lot less. So when we pray, we need to confess that we have used our tongues in ways that are unpleasing to God. This is true of all of us here. Because there are times when we speak things that are displeasing to God. 
Next. The third couplet has to do with our relationships. God requires that our relationships be holy. Now, in the first line, in verse 3, he says, he writes, This man does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes reproach against his friend. Both of these phrases are put in the negative. It is not the person that lives in the dorm. Our neighbor is not the person that lives, not just the person that lives in the dorm next to us or in the house next to us. A neighbor is every person who providentially crosses our path. We must never do evil to them. Jesus calls us to love even those who are our enemies, those who do wrong to us. We must do good to them as best as we can, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Of faith, Whether with our words, with our actions, or with our thoughts, we are to not do evil to our neighbor. And the next part says, nor takes reproach against his friend. This means that the man who dwells with God is to be slow to believe evil of his friend or of another. In order for the man that dwells in the presence of God to believe something bad about his friend, he would need sufficient proof and clear proof, substantial evidence to have to, to think differently of his friend. And even after believing it, his goal should be to love and restore his friend, not to condemn and kick him down. Before Christ saved us, our flesh enjoyed gossiping and slander. I know I did whenever I would hear the latest rumor about a hip-hop artist. I would rejoice in that and then I had something to talk about with my friends and I would talk about it freely jokingly but this should not be so with the man that dwells in the presence of God having been saved we understand that love hopes all things and bears all things and believes all things and this should be our new goal which can only be accomplished by God's grace Fourth, the fourth couplet deals, deals with our role models. The people that we look up to, the people that we honor, must be holy. In verse 4 we read, In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. The first phrase is presented in the negative. And we can reference Psalm 1 again to understand who a vile person is. He is the one who walks in the counsel of the wicked, stands in the way of sinners, and sits on the seat of scoffers. We said that this is a man who finds his influence and delight in the world and not in God. Another way to understand this verse is found in Psalm 73, and we won't go over it, but I'll sum it up for you. This is a psalm that was written by Asaph, and in this psalm he describes unsaved people being prosperous in everything that they, that they were doing, and everything was going well for them. He writes that at one point he was envious of the wicked. He goes on to describe their lives and how they had so much food and how he barely had anything to eat. And he continues saying that he was beginning to have resentment towards them until he entered the house of the Lord. When he entered the house of God, he heard the word of God. And when he heard the word of God, his perspective was changed. He saw the, des the destination of the wicked, of those who found their delights in the things of this world. And he was able to see that their end was destruction. 
He had a change of heart as he contemplated their secure judgment and condemnation. And at the end of Psalm 73, he ends up snapping out of it and he changes his mind, realizing that he really doesn't want that way. He doesn't want what the vile person has. And this is what David means in this verse, verse 4 of Psalm 15, in whose eyes a vile person is despised. It's to despise the way of the wicked, what they delight in, their lifestyle. We are not to desire that. We're to desire the way of the blessed man. The way of the man who delights in the word of God. And then David switches, switches this couplet back to the positive and he says, But this man honors those who fear the Lord. Now, you and I are to, or should honor those who are the household of, of the faith. Those who pursue holiness, who are great examples of Christ. And once again, Psalm 1 says the same thing. It says, Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. So we don't honor those that we hear about in the tabloids, or read about in the tabloids, or online. We honor and we hold in high esteem those that fear the Lord, those that seek to walk in His way and are great examples of Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that we're not to be in this world because that's impossible. We're in it. But what it does mean is that we're not to be of this world. We should not desire the ways of this world. We are to honor those who find their counsel in the law of God with those who stand in the path of the blessed and who sit in the seat with those who delight in the law of the Lord. We are to imitate them, not the wicked. David says that this is required of the person who is to dwell in God's presence. Is there a godly man or woman who has influenced you? If so, I would encourage you to encourage him or her to pray for him or her. That's a way in which we can honor them and seek to model our um, to model our, our lives after them. Next, we have the fifth couplet, which has to do which has to do with our commitment. What this couplet means is that, is that we are to let our, let our yes be yes and let our no be no. Because Jesus says that anything other than this is evil. So verse 5 says, The man who is to dwell in the presence of God swears to his own hurt and does not change. This is someone who enters an agreement with a person and all of a sudden, the circumstances change unexpectedly, making it inconvenient to keep the commitment. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. It's happened to me. And keeping one's commitment is a mark of holiness. In this case, even when things change for this man or woman, he will no longer, and he will no longer benefit from it, even to the point where he might even end up taking a loss. The man who may dwell in the presence of God is one who will not change his commitment. He does not change his mind or commitment when the weather changes unexpectedly. There are some people who do not commit because they're waiting for something better to come along. And I'm guilty of this. There have been times where I have not wanted to commit to something on the weekend. For example, if someone asks me for help on a Saturday and it's Monday and there's still a few days where I can find something to do on Saturday and I say, uh, I'll let you know. 
I might be busy. I'm guilty of not wanting to commit to something because of something better that might show up. This is not good. And we should not do that. And then this verse continues saying, But the man who is to dwell in the presence of God swears to his own hurt and does not change. And I've come to realize that it's very easy to keep our promises when it's to our advantage. But what about when when the conditions have changed and the agreement is no longer to our advantage? Do you honor your promise? Or do you try to find some way out? Do you ever tell, or have you ever told someone, Oh yeah, I'm going to pray for you. Have you? Or, oh, I'll, I'll be there for you. Are you? Remember that it's only by God's grace that we can keep our promises. And we must strive to keep our commitments. And last, the sixth and final couplet deals with our finances. This is uh, the way that we administrate our finances is also a mark of our holiness. In verse 5, it says, Who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. Now, this isn't saying that it's sinful for you to put your money in a savings or an IRA account because you're going to be gaining interest on it. Jesus talks about lending money and gaining interest, and he uses it as example, as an example to help us understand the kingdom. But what this refers to is, it has to do with a brother helping another brother. In the Old Testament, it was prohibited for a Jewish man to take advantage of someone if they were down and out. David says, That the man who is to dwell in the presence of God needs to help those that are in need. He needs to offer assistance in raising him up and to lend without additional interest so that he can more easily get back on his feet. Because this is what it is to live in love. Now especially within the family of God, there needs to be genuine love extended to our brothers and sisters without interest. We are to hold on to our resources openly with a willingness to give and help. This isn't always easy because, as we said earlier, this world has rewired us to think sinfully. And that's why it's so important for us to be transformed by the renewal of our minds, as Paul says. And that happens as we come to the Word of God and let the Word of God transform our thinking. Because it is only then that we will hold our resources open and freely and we will give. Because we understand that everything that we have comes from the Lord and is not ours to begin with. And then it says... This man does not take a bribe against the innocent. And what this means is that people cannot, people who have means cannot buy this man, cannot buy the man who dwells in God's presence. He's not easily influenced by money. He is not easily influenced by this kind of behavior. So this man is to live in such a way where he follows the Lord's influence. And not the world's. And this is what's required of all of us who have been saved by God's grace. This is for our instruction so that we might abide in the Lord's tent and on His holy hill. This means that we must be pursuing holiness. 
And if that's not the case, we need to confess and repent, knowing that God will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now that, we look, now that we've looked at the requirements, let's move on to the third point, third and final point. And this is our assurance. So we've addressed the question, then the requirements or the answer to that question. And now we have our assurance. Here David ends with something positive, a word of assurance. And let's be encouraged by this, in how this passage ends. David writes, He who does these things shall never be moved. The word does, does not mean that this is a person who only thinks about these things, about the requirements. It's not only one who desires to do these things or only teaches these things. To do these things is to act upon what God's word teaches us and calls us to do. In other words, the man who is to dwell in the presence of God works for these things. He walks. He carries these things out. He who does these things will never be shaken or will never be moved. There is a weight that comes as a result of doing what God calls us to do. So much so that we become anchored and grounded in the Lord and are not blown away like the chaff that we talked about in Psalm 1. But we take our roots, take ground, are grounded in Christ and therefore we are unshakable. Psalm 1, 3 says, The man who is to dwell in the presence of God will be like a tree planted by streams of water, having deep roots down into the soil, drying up from rivers of living water. Even in times of drought and famine, this man is rooted and grounded to the source that supplies for him. He will not be shaken he will have a firm hold on Jesus, of Jesus. And Jesus says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them will be like a man who built his house on the rock. And when the rains came and when the winds blew and beat against the house, it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. So when we build upon Christ by His grace and we implement what He requires of us, we will not be shaken or we will not be moved. No matter how difficult the storms in life may be. Do we understand what the Lord requires of us? Remember that this list is not a list that is a basis for our salvation for no one will be saved by works by the works of the law our salvation is a free gift by grace through faith alone our sanctification is by his grace this is a work of god's spirit within us and it shows us our need and our dependency of him every day So I ask you, how many of you can live like this every single day, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year? None of us can. We are to cling to Christ because He is the only one who has lived this way perfectly. And it is because of Christ that we can stand before God. God has made holiness available to us through Christ. In His eyes, we are seen as holy. But that does not do away with our responsibility. 
God requires all those that walk in His presence to walk in Christ's footsteps and be imitators of Him as best as we can. If this is not the case in our lives, we need to humble ourselves, repent, and confess our sins. If we have been received as a guest in God's house or in His presence, then all of this is necessary for us to dwell in His tent and on His holy hill. Now, if you find yourself today here and you find that this does not represent your life, this should tell you that the Lord is not in your life. And for Him to be yours, you must be willing to repent and turn away from your sin and believe in Christ. You must throw yourself upon Him, realizing that you have rejected Him, but also realizing that He is willing to forgive and wants to forgive. And He forgives freely to all those who turn away and turn to Him. Because our salvation comes by faith in his in God's son Jesus Christ who has lived this way perfectly the lord calls all to turn away from sin and to turn to him that we should dwell with him on his hill let's pray o righteous heavenly father We come before you, praising you, because you are a holy God. You are a holy God who has decided to save sinful men like ourselves. Not based on anything that we've done or that we can do. But based on your loving kindness, your grace, your mercy. We thank you. For salvation, we thank you that in Christ we are seen as holy, that in Christ we have been declared just, we have been justified as a free gift, which we could never earn. Lord, we confess that we have not done this, we have not kept your requirements perfectly. But we come before you asking that your spirit would. Continue giving us the desire and the ability to walk in obedience, to live in holiness, to live differently than this world, to find our delight in you and in your your word, not in this world. And we trust your promises. Your word tells us that if we ask anything in your name, according to your will, you would do it. And we know that your will is our sanctification. So, Lord, we ask these things trusting that you listen to our prayers and that you are working in us for your glory. So we praise you. We thank you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.